This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another illuminating episode of The O Ship Show, where we navigate through the stormy seas of technology, business, and culture. I'm your host, Freddie Laker, and get ready to set sail into the future of work. Today, we're asking a big question. How will AI change the trajectory of the future of work? And to help us answer this question, we have an extraordinary guest on board, Krish Ramaneni, the CEO of Fireflies AI, a company that's revolutionizing the way we manage our work meetings. From recording to transcribing to analyzing all your meetings, Fireflies AI is an invaluable asset to tens of thousands of organizations around the world. I should know, I'm one of them. But it's attracted considerable attention for its use of AI in particular to better make sense of the countless meetings that many of us participate in. Krish is a keen enthusiast of AI and is continually working with cutting edge technologies like OpenAI, large language models, generative AI, and in general, is just on a mission to transform our workplaces with the power of AI, focusing particularly on workflows, knowledge management, and business process automation. So get ready to dive deep into the future of work, explore how AI is poised to redefine roles across organizations and industries, from cool consumer uses of ChatGPT to the nitty gritty of building a big business with AI. We're covering it all in this episode. So pull up a chair, plug in your headphones, and get ready for an enlightening conversation about the future work with Krish. Welcome to the O Ship Show. Krish, welcome to O Ship. How are you? I'm good, Freddie. Thanks for having me on. I have to break the ice with the obvious question for anyone that uses Fireflies AI out there. Your AI is called Fred. And although we haven't met before today, I need to understand why you named your AI after me, obviously. Yeah, I think Freddie would have been cooler than Fred, to be honest. <laughs> the inspiration actually came from, we looked at all the AI assistants out there and they were all female names. And we wanted to break the gender stereotype that why can't there be male uh, assistants as well? Why do you have to always uh, stereotype it to females? So you have Ceres and Alexas of the world. And yeah, we said, let's just do Fred because, you know, Fred and Fireflies both start I love with it. that. <laughs> it only makes me double love the product. As we ended up getting connected to do this episode, I was already a customer and I was really excited to have you come on because it is a really, really cool product. And it's funny, a bunch of my colleagues now use it as well. So I've watched it kind of spread through the company as people find how useful it is. But before we dig into that, let's go back in time a bit. I think, you know, everyone's chatting about AI these days, but the reality is I think you've been thinking about it for quite a bit longer. What initially sparked your interest in AI and in particular kind of, you know, how that relates back to the workplace? For me, even before all of this AI stuff that you're seeing today with generative AI and large language models and the magic you see with chat GPT, I was always fascinated by this idea of, can I have something that does work for me when I just give it a command, like a genie, right? Mm -hmm. So that was really cool watching like Iron Man and seeing how Iron Man talks to Jarvis and then mm -hmm. he does the work for you. 
And then there was the movie Her. So there's just so many of these ideas that we will eventually get to a point where AI will be democratized and accessible by everyone. And when that happens, everyone's going to have their own little assistant that follows them around. And honestly, like that's what Fireflies aspires to be, where we have a little assistant that follows you around in your meetings. It takes notes. It'll do so much more after. But yeah. I mean, there's got to be something to be said for the fact that if that's kind of maybe where the future of all this goes, you're analyzing God knows how many you know meetings every single day. Could you give me a sense of like the number of customers you guys are working with and maybe even the number of meetings that you might be processing on a daily basis? Yeah, it's definitely in the millions and the wow. type of people that get notes after meetings, whether it's the participants or the end users, it's in the millions of people wow. every month that get notes generated. We had a data point that we shared a year ago, and it's probably much higher than that. But if Fireflies was an actual person that had to sit through every single meeting, it would take about a thousand years in one single year. That's how long it would take. It's probably now closer to 2000 or more years worth of meetings every year. That's what we do. And I saw the CEO of NVIDIA presenting recently. They actually came up with some analysis that said that 65% of web traffic is video calls. So that was shocking and stunning to me at the same time. And I had not known that till it is amazing beyond the sheer bandwidth implications of that. I mean, just the amount of time that people were spent chatting, God knows it's how I spend all of my day, even when I'm not interviewing people for a ship. That's a really interesting insight. I guess when you're dealing with that much data that you've learned from, I'd love to hear when you start thinking about maybe the flip to this, when you start dealing around maybe some of the common misconceptions that people may have around AI in the workplace. I think it's easy to recognize maybe some of the positives you've seen, but I'd love to see where you think maybe people, their misunderstandings out there. The most important thing is around security and what you do with that data. So for us in the enterprise, it's much easier to be very, very explicit that how we use your data, how it's only going to be available within that container. And we also updated a lot of our terms and services to say, look, your data is your own. And we sign agreements with like companies like OpenAI saying you are not allowed to train on customer data. Consumer companies are going to be a little bit more relaxed, but for enterprise, you cannot be relaxed, right? And so that data is really important. And we want to continue to reaffirm to our customers that this data is yours and it's not going to be used for any other purposes other than to help you get the best meeting notes, get the best action items and help you be productive. We also think deeply about how we can make AI not only secure, but valuable for enterprise level use cases. Because there is so much workflows and automation that can be done to help you be more productive. The idea when we first started Fireflies was, wow, I have a lot of sales calls. It would be great if I could just have an assistant fill out Salesforce for me because I don't want to do that. And that's like a really, really like painful. So that's something that we've also had do today where Fireflies is able to take notes and then fill it out in Salesforce. I'll tell you one thing you mentioned earlier that never even dawned on me, and I guess probably wouldn't dawn on a lot of our listeners either. When you start, you know, if you're using any kind of you know, like, you know, APIs like OpenAI's API for ChatGPT, 
you're sending them a lot of data and it never dawned on me that you know, people could basically, they could be using all this data that were there to enhance their product further. So it's like, it doesn't even matter if you feel like you're keeping their data secure, that these guys can and probably are enhancing their product with all of that. Exactly. And a lot of consumer companies may not notice that, but like we have an enterprise contract in place with OpenAI. We're working closely with them. Our investors are also investors in OpenAI. So building that relationship with the folks over there and treating enterprise data as like, you know, top of the line private data and having agreements in place and making sure those things are placed. This is basic hygiene, but... Mm. You know, this is something I, I tell other people is if you are using generative AI, there's so many amazing generative AI tools, just make sure that you know that they are not using your data to train some public models, right? Like yeah. that is really, really important. We heard about something with Samsung, like some engineer had used it and posted it to ChatGPT and it ended up getting trained on it and created a whole lot of stuff. So data privacy, sensitivity of that information is especially important for meetings. So we've taken a lot of extra steps. We actually have a dedicated person that just focuses on how LLMs need to be used in an ethical manner to train and keep the data secure, or rather the lack of training and avoiding training and these sort of things. And just for anyone who might be tuning in now who's not been immersing themselves in this world, so LLMs are basically large language models. This is like this concept that you just feed AI, these just insane amounts of you know, text and data and so on. And it's that breadth of data that allows it to get so smart and kind of almost like look at things from different perspectives because it's got so much data to look at so many different possibilities for something. Is that a fair summary? I would say so. I think yeah, that's a lame summary anyway. I just want to make sure that people yeah. are following with us. I'd love to understand as you've been looking at like building this business and it's your first company, right? Yeah. That's exciting. So, okay. Even more interesting, I think, through this lens. So have you started thinking about how you've got Firefly's AI basically thinking about how you're trying to automate work, thinking about almost the future work. You've got this kind of big vision ahead of you. Can you talk about maybe some challenges that you've come into along the way and how you've worked to overcome them? Yeah, there's been so many challenges and moments where we're like, hey, is this something that we actually should be doing? We started well before this AI wave happened in 2018, 2019. So the technology wasn't obvious that it was going to be good enough in the early days. Like, is the transcription going to be accurate? Are we going to be able to process this much data at this level of volume? How should the end user experience be? Like, why would someone want a note taker in their meetings, right? So a lot of these questions that we had to answer and de-risk layer by layer over time. And I believe there was a time for us where me and my co-founder went back and forth on this a lot, where we said, hey, maybe the product shouldn't even be a UI, right? It should just be an email recap, right, that you sent. That was like a big moment where we were at standstills and like, I think refused, right, to build the dashboard and said, all we're going to do is just send them the summary over email. And that's the product. That's how we started, actually. Wow. Uh, and it was, yeah, it took a lot of convincing. And then my co-founder and CTO, Sam, also started realizing that, hey, no matter what summary you do, it's not going to be perfect. And you need to give them a way to dive into their summary or into their transcript and search for the things that they want. And that led to the creation of smart search where you can press a button and it'll filter do action items or dates or times. And 
allow you to see the information you want to see within the context of the entire transcript. So this was pre-LLM, generative AI, open AI days, to now where almost feels like infusing all of this AI, open AI stuff into the product is just taking what's already been there that's been like nine out of 10 and making it like 12 out of 10, like blowing people's mind about how magical it can feel. Uh, I'd argue is that probably gives you a competitive advantage as well if someone's only using open AI's tech. Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of companies, especially the recent YC cohorts, where they saw, this is really interesting technology. Let me go just build a product that uses AI under the hood or open AI under the hood. They essentially built wrappers. There are other companies that started well before this that built out a proper SaaS business, built out proper use cases, integrations, workflows, all of that, like what we had been doing. And then I almost feel like the injection of AI versus building your entire company on top of one little advancement is better because you also have a fundamental business that you can work and improve on top of. So I think the companies that had already been working on this a couple of years in advance, them injecting open AI into their products are going to probably see more benefits than just building a wrapper around this technology. If you had to give any advice to any startups or even businesses that might be thinking about building open AI into their tech or their platform or building something just completely based on it now, any advice you give them to make sure they don't kind of follow in any mistakes you may have made? Yeah. So we made this mistake in the beginning as well, just because something is new and shiny doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem that you need to solve there. So start with the problem. Don't fall in love with the technology. It's hard for us as technologists, engineers, product people to fall in love with the functionality or the technology, but it's more important to fall in love with the problem and the pain point that you're solving for customers and then see where you need to sprinkle in AI rather than saying AI is the solution to a made up problem. Mm -hmm. Good advice. I'm as guilty as they can be about sometimes getting really excited about new technology. And I think this is, you know, the hype feels a little bit off the charts on this one, but I feel like this one might be real in the sense that you're seeing really meaningful problems being solved, especially with, you know, tools like what you're building, where, you know, again, some of the last things that went through the crazy hype cycle, like the metaverse and so on, really didn't kind of live up to the expectation. I'd love to change gears a little bit and kind of go back to the core of what this episode was about and really kind of lean in on how kind of the, you know, the intersection of AI and future work. So you're basically going to impact everyone. So let's start with this. How do you think AI is going to influence workplace culture and employee engagement over the next you know, five to 10 years? AI can be used for good and making people productive. AI can also be used to make people learn new skills that they hadn't learned. So there's this always constant predicament about, will AI replace me, right? That's something, that's the big elephant in the room we should talk about. And then the second thing is, if I don't adopt AI, what's gonna happen? And my take is that I don't think AI alone will replace you, but a person that is using AI more often than not will have an advantage or skill set and could replace you. It's like back in the day where someone refused to use the computer or do spreadsheets online or the internet and send emails where they want to do everything over fax versus, you know, the world changes, right? And so 
there is a tectonic shift. I think the AI shift is even bigger. But every time that new technology comes into the place, there's new opportunity work that does get created. Mm -hmm. And we saw this from the advent of electricity and even like the horse carriages to the cars. Like think about all the people, like the horses, the people that were, you know, driving the horses. So all of those things that lost out on the job, right? So for me, my belief is that AI will allow a person to do two or three times the -hmm. work that they would normally do. And it will actually put more emphasis on your ability to be creative. And mm-hmm. we're seeing this with how people use ChatGPT and the prompts and stuff. Everyone has access, equal access to the technology. It's not like where some people have like access to AI and others don't. I think it'll be as accessible as the internet or mm. a smartphone or electricity. And how you creatively use AI to solve the problems for your particular role is going to be the defining point. So we're going to see less of mundane, repetitive, rote work and more around creative problem solving. And then there will be new jobs created to help tackle some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. I love this idea that, you know, I had mentioned in, on OSHIP in the past, this idea that AI was like your partner and it was give you kind of your superpowers is a word I like to use a lot, but it kind of would make you massively productive so you can do more. And what I loved in what you said was that it's not the AI that's going to replace you. It's going to be another person using AI that's going to replace you that I think is really, really interesting. And, you know, some part of me, when you think about what the future of our whole society may look like, you could say, well, you know, we're going to get so productive that millions of jobs collectively could be lost or whatever. But another option is if you look back at some of the references you made, where you think about the industrial revolution or things that have subsequently or even before that, it could actually be that no jobs are end up lost. It's just this massive level of productivity happens in our society. And it's not that we get everyone so productive that we need less people to do it all. It's just the whole society raises up. But we just start doing more, more in general. We create more innovation, more science, more art, more of everything, just because we now can do more with the tech that was provided. But it, people got to get on the program, in my opinion, or they're going to be in trouble. One classic example is the telephone operator where you have to call and they'll route you to a different person. Like that's non-existent today, right? You don't have telephone operators, but I think roles change, jobs change, things that you didn't have in the past you have now. So for example, you don't have telephone operators, but you have all of those people setting up like the Wi-Fi signals and all of the instrumentation across, right? Or the wiring for the cables, IT cables. So New technology paves the road for, I think, new infrastructure. That's just the way things work. I saw something online that, you know, was a really funny meme where the building was in construction and then there was like a banner that said, hey, chat GPT, finish building this. So (laughs) yeah, that was the thing, right? There was this idea that a lot of the physical labor was going to be replaced first. But in fact, it's the knowledge workers that are going to have to become innovative, creative, and level up faster. Because I used to always be amazed, right, when I was in Silicon Valley, why is someone that's making this like fun social media game, right, versus the person building the bridges? Like, why is there such a disparity in like, 
who's getting paid what, right? It's just the demand of the market. But I think the person building the bridges is extremely important, extremely valuable. So we'll have to see how AI impacts the physical world. It's very clear to see where the impact is going to be on the digital world. But maybe like AI using 3D printing and doing like crazy things could potentially happen. But yeah, that's an area that I'm fascinated to watch. Well, since you're thinking of the future, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Beyond what we've talked about so far, if you had to make kind of a bold prediction, and the good news is I promise you, I don't think anyone's going to come back and watch your ship 10 years from now and call BS on you. So you can get really crazy. <laughs> if you had to make a bold prediction for you know something that's unexpected that might happen in five or 10 years due to AI, is there anything that kind of you know jumps to mind? I believe that with AI, smaller companies are going to be able to do the work of large, large enterprises. So one of my things is with all of this AI being implemented, could a pump company with 10, 20, okay, maybe even 100 people go all the way from founding to public, right? Usually if you're a public company, you have tens of thousands of employees, right? So what does that look like? I think that could be very much a reality in the next decade. And I'm also very fascinated by what role AI will have in the creative entertainment industry, because you're seeing people take the voices of famous musicians and create music based on that. So how do we value and judge creative work, which used to be so uniquely a human element? And AI comes in and says, yeah, I can sing a song like Drake. It's not that like difficult. So what makes a human unique and special? So this is something that I don't know, but we can have some massive impact even on the music industry where a lot of these musicians are going to just say, you know what, let me just start sampling AI into my music. And it's something that I have to adopt and embrace, just like how a lot of people embrace autotune. So these are the sort of things that I see. Again, economic impact, I won't comment on that, but at least I think very much in reality, we could see a company with 20, 30 employees go from founding to public. I think that's yeah, very funny. much the a possibility. The consistent theme I hear from you on that is people that figure out how to use this tech are going to use it to great advantage. One of the things I like to talk about consistently is this idea that the power of technology is only going one direction, the cost is only going one direction, and so, you know, I've been doing this quite a long time now and like the things that I, you know, was having access to 20 years ago, building companies cost tens of thousands of dollars that might be literally free or a $10 a month, you know, SaaS tool now. And now you start thinking about things like AI, which I would argue are like nuclear weapon level powerful in terms of their ability to just do incredible, massive things at scale. And to your point, it could take 10 people and make them the equivalent of a thousand people if they've got the right idea, because then it's going to help people execute things faster and at scale. It's exciting. The age of the kind of monolithic corporation, I think, may be far less interesting versus a lot more dispersed, smaller groups doing more creative things at an individual level. So it's exciting. Again, I have a sneaky suspicion you could talk about this for hours and hours and hours on end, but I want to go back to this concept of just the impact on work specifically. I've got two follow-up questions. It's effectively a comparable question about how certain groups are gonna get impacted. And one of them that's also something I'm passionate about is the gig economy. And I'd be interested to see how you think, you know, AI may impact the gig economy specifically. Yeah, 
I think I'll start with the gig economy one and then we can elaborate a little bit. Further yeah, yeah, exactly. On the other one. So for me, when I think about the gig economy and some of the roles that were done in the digital space, so there's a lot of these companies that essentially serve as mechanical Turk and well, they'll label your data, they'll do a lot of this data hygiene and so forth. Now, all of a sudden you have single shot learning, zero shot learning where the AI can automatically like classify things, label things for you. Like we're even working on certain things around CS ticket automation and classification where we're using AI. So in my world view, that repetitive, again, the theme is if it's a repetitive task, imagine AI being a 14 or 15 year old today, right? Eventually it'll be like a college student, PhD level, intelligent AI. But right now it's like a 15 year old. If it's a repetitive task that a 15 year old can do, chances are AI will be able to do it today or in the very near future. I believe that. So in terms of like the gig economy and, you know, again, anytime you talk about AI, there's going to be politics involved. There's going to be economics involved. There could be questions around, oh, do we need universal basic income? What is the solution? Like, what if there is no jobs and all people can do is creative stuff and then they get paid to do creative stuff? And that's the world we enter. I don't know. I think that's above my pay grade today. <laughs> but I do believe that when it comes to the gig economy, the things that we tend to see is there's going to be hyper optimization around underserved markets or underserved needs. So, for example, what you had with the taxis, they can only do a certain volume, probably. And then now you look at Uber in every city, every place. Yes, it disrupted an entire industry, but in theory, you're hyper-optimizing for serving the most amount of users or people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way capitalism works, is how do you keep optimizing a problem until you support everyone? And even, let's say, the technology that I'm really excited about is the new headset, the Vision Pros that Apple has released. It's like a very expensive price point. It's like $3,400. It's pretty big, but it's stylish and it's nice. I'm not a big believer in VR, but AR, I'm bullish on what the possibilities of that are. So a couple of thoughts came up to me on this idea that when the computers first came out in the 80s, right? And Microsoft had this vision of a computer on every desk in every home. Computers were way too big for any desk. They required like an entire office <laughs> in order for those computers. So you've kind of followed that law, the Moore's law, the technology law, and computers got smaller and smaller to the time that they're in now the size of the palm of our hands. So we really have a very powerful computer in our hands. That smartphone is probably more powerful than the computer that was used to send people up to space. By a thousand plus fold, I'm guessing. <laughs> exactly, right? So. What we see today with something even like the Apple device, imagine if it becomes so small that it can be a contact lens, yeah. right? That you wear and you have augmented reality at literally your fingertips. So I do believe this construct of where the virtual world and the real world come together and imagine having AI that follows you around all the time and giving you feedback. There's a fundamentally game-changing thing that is possible because of that. And you also see with Elon, like Neuralink, again, it's very early stage. We don't know like if it's going to go through testing and stuff. But in theory, imagine if someone gets hooked up with the Neuralink and then all of a sudden they can learn any language in a matter of seconds and they can speak in any language because of Neuralink or any piece of information that they want to know, like it's already embedded into their memory. Even if anyone wants the kind of Vision Pro demo, they could basically control the interface with their hands 
instead of doing that with Neuralink, you could just control the interfaces with a flick of the mind, if you, yeah. if you will. You know what I mean? There was uh, a really cool technology out of MIT Media Lab where you put this device on your head and it turns your thoughts into text. So the impulses that are being sent from your brain. And they showed an example of this person where they just put that headset on. They looked at like the Domino's pizza catalog and they ordered pizza with their mind without typing anything or saying anything, right? So you have actions, you have speech, and then now you can like essentially mind control. That's crazy, right? If any action that you think of can happen, the latency, I'm a big believer in reducing latency. And that is actually honestly why we're a little bit of a spoiled generation, because imagine in the past, you wanted to get anything, you actually had to physically go to the store, bring it over, or it won't be available in the store. You have to drive to another store. It takes like two, three days. Now it's like, I want this sofa tomorrow in my living room. You press a button, you get Amazon Prime shipped, right? right? Within the next day. And I think we're talking about a world where the friction of even having to pull your phone out is gone. Yeah, you imagine, know, I mean, that could be dangerous where like yeah. you're reacting to every little impulse in your brain. That's the one thing that makes humans really good is to have self-discipline. Imagine if you have no self-discipline, like I've been guilty of it where I'm hungry at night and I could eat something healthy, but I'll open up DoorDash or Uber Eats and I have a thousand options to pick from. And I will pick something and it's like, okay, I want this delivered. Okay, within 20 minutes, it's delivered at the footsteps. You can even say the same thing about dating apps. And I've talked to people that have used those applications or dated before they existed versus now where especially in places like New York, where I've had a lot of friends tell me, you have so many options that you're just next, next. It's like a psychological behavior. You just go next, next. You can meet someone great, but then you're like, oh, there's something better out there. It's the paradox yeah. of choice and yeah. optionality. So I think one negative thing about like this AI and accessibility could be that we have way more options and choice than what's good for us potentially. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny, you just made me think of something that never dawned on me before. This idea that if technology is allowing us to do things faster and faster and faster, whether that's ordering something, you know, in e-commerce or just taking any access to information, booking flights, whatever it is, the time from I want to do something to I just made it happen is beginning smaller and smaller and smaller every year. Then you start imagining a future, whether it's Neuralink or some other technology, but effectively computers are connected to us to the point we don't have to pull this out to do anything. They say, you know, don't drunk text. I think it's going to be a lot harder, like don't drunk mind control your brain computer. You're like, oh, I'm sorry. I just thought about you last night and I sent you like a two-page essay. I apologize. <laughs> this is going to get messy. So I want to go back to the original conversation which around, you're talking about you know, your take on the gig economy. And I can't help but think as someone who's worked in it for some time, I think you talked about a lot of the people that are kind of impact in the classic gig economy. We talked about how like a small company of 10 people could be the equivalent of a company of a thousand people. I can't help but think that same thing that gig workers at maybe the higher end of the market, if they're like these workers we talked about early on, that they are adopting AI technologies, they may be able to make themselves incredibly valuable. But in the end of the day, it's going to go back to what you originally said. It's like, how creative are you? How intelligently are you using these tools to maximum effect? Right. So I want to jump a quick segue. We talked about the gig economy. There's another area that I know is near and dear to both of our hearts, and that's entrepreneurs. 
And so we alluded to how an entrepreneur might build a bigger business faster on their path to maybe even an IPO, but there's a lot of other parts to being an entrepreneur. You've got the fundraising process, you've got networking. There's all these kind of infinite things that you need to try and do to build a business. I mean, again, you're living it every day right now. How do you think AI could impact the entrepreneurial journey for a lot of founders, whether they're first-time founders or, you know, serial masochists like me? <laughs> it's funny that you say that, like with what could we do five years ago versus today? And that's a common thing that I think about. And every year you look back at what is the possibility of it. And I've also sat down this weekend and looked at who are the type of people we're hiring? How has that changed? And will AI make a fundamental impact on our hiring trajectory going forward? And I think that one of the things that I have seen is before we used to hire specialists that were very good at a particular thing. And my co-founder and I go back and forth on all of this, but actually sometimes at least a company our size, right? You're a hundred people or less generalist that has the ability to adapt and learn and has a high ceiling is far more valuable and has more potential to adapt to the changes that are brought forward by mm. AI. And I think AI can also be used to learn anything really quickly. So I've used it to review contracts and try to understand legal terminology. I've used it to break down very complex topics and I've asked AI to help me or teach me how to understand like the tax code. So I'm learning at a rapid pace than I could have ever learned before, but I'm also having to be more adaptable. So if my entire job at a company is to push papers or, you know, open a spreadsheet and fill out a particular field, I don't think that is a defensible moat. And mm -hmm. for startups that are hiring people, I think this is actually the thing. This is where the value of a human skill set is going to be more precious, right? That's something you cannot take away or automate. I'll give two examples. One is if you go to McDonald's, you're seeing a lot of self-service kiosks. And that works fine because you want fast McDonald's quickly. But then you go to a nicer, higher-end restaurant, you're actually paying for the service. You want a human to greet you. You want a human to take care of your needs and help you out. And so that is something that is very much where unique to what a human can do, build those relationships. <clears throat> when we built Fireflies, we said, no salespeople, it's all going to be self-service. You go online, you swipe your credit card and you buy it. In fact, there are many people that would want to buy that way and where they don't want to talk to a human. They're a little antisocial. Like if you're an engineer, it's like, I don't want to talk to a human. I'm just going to go test it out and buy it myself. And that was great for a large segment of the market. And then we realized, wow, there's some people where you can literally make it super easy for them, but they still want a human to talk to, sit down, essentially kind of go through step by step, bit by bit with them and hold their hand through it. It's not that they're not smart. It's because they feel like, hey, we're going to be paying a lot for this service or this product. I want to be taken care of. And so that's where I realized like, you cannot force people to buy the way I want them to buy. I have to let them buy the way they want to buy. And uh, so you have to make those fundamental decisions. So that's why we have folks now that are dedicated to some of these larger organizations. Can AI replace that? I don't know. Maybe that personalization that happens with the individual, instead of being able to take care of 10 customers, he can take care of 20 or 30. But that human element is something that people are still seeking or craving or desire, right?
I love that great insight. And I like the concept of a moat that people should be thinking about when they are thinking about their own professional careers. So Chris, you're on a ship at this moment had to come at some point. But for those of you who have never tuned into our ship show before, one of the core premises of the show is that we're very lucky to get great, successful leaders, entrepreneurs, people who are shaping industries. And through that journey, have probably had a fair amount of success. But I think it's also important for people to understand that if you just read some of the traditional media outlets out there and so on, it's easy to look at some of the success of some of these people and think that it's easy or it just happened overnight. And, and then when you struggle and it doesn't go as well as you had planned, that in some way that you have failed or you are less than. And so one of the things I really like to do is be able to ask people like Krish, you know, at some point in your career, there must have been a moment, whether it's at Fireflies or before that, where things didn't kind of go as you had planned, kind of went off the rails a little bit. And I'd love to know how you handled that. And sometimes maybe that's a personal journey where, hey, you're like, this changed the way that I was a leader or it changed the way I was an entrepreneur. Sometimes people might say, look, this is just a really important lesson I learned that shaped my decision making. And every once in a while, we get one that's like, I'm not sure if I learned anything, but it wasn't very funny then, but it's really funny now. You can take it any direction you want, but I would love to hear your O-ship story, if you will. Yeah. I think for ours, it was around how we were going to market with our product and thinking about pricing. It's always like a really sensitive topic for customers. And usually when it comes to what we provide as a service, like the alternative is if you get a human to transcribe your meetings and write it down, it's costing you $60 an hour. Whereas, you know, Fireflies, you get six months of a subscription for that price. So it was something where like, hey, we're giving a lot away. And there was always this push around how do you like raise prices or do other sort of things. One of the things we had early on was limiting storage. So you could get a certain amount of storage when you were an individual on the product. And then when you add teammates, that storage stayed the same. And the idea was that well, you're going to have to upgrade in order to get more storage as a team. But we thought about that a lot because... Well, in order for them to have more storage, we're trying to drive a certain behavior, but that made people upset. Hey, if I'm going to add more teammates, I want more storage for each person. So that was a friction point where in our mind was like, no, you're going to have to upgrade. And so how do we align around teams using Fireflies and giving more to teams than what you give just to individuals? Because their mindset is I was getting more as an individual. Now I have to share all this with my teammates. It kind of defeats the purpose, right? So we thought about it. There are two types of decisions. There are, you know, one-way decisions and two-way decisions. Once you walk through that door, you can never walk back, or you can walk through that door and then you can take your word back and you can walk back on it, right? So for us, we had to make a conscious decision and we eventually decided, you know what, if you're going to add new teammates, each teammate was going to get another additional amount of storage and a crazy amount of storage to like almost 10 X star storage from like 800 minutes to like 8,000 minutes, crazy amount of storage. And the idea around that was that, Hey, we want to show that we're committed to teams using fireflies. And we also went a step further and launched a unlimited storage plan on the business tier. So again, this was costly. And the option was you could raise prices or you could go back and figure out how to reduce your infrastructure costs so that you pass along the benefits to the customers. 
And it was really tough because in a way you're taking more of a cost and you don't know if you're going to be able to reduce prices. But over the span of a year, we did figure out how to continue to optimize and reduce our operating costs without having to increase the burden on our customers. So the reason I say the two decision-making frameworks are really important is if I had gone ahead and gave them this unlimited storage or like 10x storage and then said, just kidding, the numbers don't work out, we're going to have to reverse it, people would be absolutely pissed, right? So when you give something to someone and then take it away, they get way more angry versus saying like, sorry, we can't do that. This is the process. If you had to summarize that idea down into kind of like a succinct lesson on your relationships you build with customers, what would be a summarized version of that? Don't promise something that you can't deliver. And if you promise to do something, make sure you follow up on it and don't take it back because you may forget and you might think it'll pass over, but they won't forget. I think that is very, very good advice. Trish, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. It's been really, really interesting. You've got a great company and you're deeply immersed in an area that a lot of people are really excited about. So it's an honor to have you on the show. If people want to learn more about you or your business, what's the best way for them to get in touch? So there's definitely our website at fireflies.ai where they can learn more about Fireflies. They can also check things that I post related to all of this AI stuff on LinkedIn as well as Instagram. I've been a little bit more active on social media. Again, my Twitter handle is also the same. It's Chris Ramanini. We used to be a little bit social media shy, and now I'm getting into it more and trying to just share more thoughts around AI and startups and entrepreneurship. So you can follow us there. That's great. Well, I encourage everyone to do that. And I want to thank all the guests who've been tuning in during this episode. Your support means the world to us. So the best thing you can do to support the show is give us a like, comment, subscribe, continuing to help the show grow every single week. We appreciate you. And this is not something that we're doing to build a business or monetize. We're doing it because it counts and matters to the community of people that tune into this show every week. Whether you're an aspiring leader, you're deeply immersed in the corporate world, or you're an entrepreneur who's out there on their first, second, third, or more companies. And sometimes you just need to hear a voice from some others like you who are going through it. We want to be there for you and we want you to feel inspired and we also want you to feel a little bit of therapy (laughs) that you're not alone out there. Thank you for subscribing. We appreciate you. And Chris, thank you again for being on our ship. We appreciate you and I hope to see you around and I'll keep using your product. And now I know I got a direct line to the top when I got some cool (laughs) ideas for a feature. So thanks again. See you next week, everyone on our ship.